This is a mobile phone my seven-year-old nephew made. It has a projector, a biometric fingerprint system, and a secret eye with a control system that sends him real-time information whilst he's in school. While he doesn't actually own a spy cam, they are easy to buy. And of course, spycraft is a very old, familiar genre of toys. A while back, Barbie came out with the Barbie Video Girl Cam doll, part of the class of toys that act to familiarize children with the realities of life. Also, whatever you do, please do not do a search for Barbie webcam. <laughs> but nothing quite beats this Playmobil security checkpoint set that is fun to be had in the police state. One of the reviewers on Amazon said, this toy is of little or no use as an educational toy because everyone is smiling. Two, there's no way to do cavity searches. Another says, get it now as soon it will no longer be available. TSA has requested that this product be removed from the market. It was deemed a security risk because it's virtually identical to the actual training material used to train TSA agents. We learn early enough today that watching and being watched is, a, is an integral part of our lives. Whilst the integration of spycraft into play goes at least as far back as Bond and Dick Tracy, nothing quite beats today's real-time simulation of current events. Yeah, this, just, this goes on a loop, so I'm going to go to the next slide. But like one minute you see Edward Snowden on a 24-hour news cycle, and the next minute your child might be playing with a rather gawky Snowden and a flamboyant Assange action figures as they attempt to make their escape through the Playmobil airport security checkpoint. <laughs> Earlier this year, you could purchase the Snowden and Assange action figures for $99 at that'smyface.com. They even had a 10% discount code using the promo code NSA. Unfortunately, not anymore. I wonder why. But don't be too disappointed. My friend Dan Williams made a Snowden calendar you might be able to grab a copy of. 3D action figures, visual merchandise, and a beam teleconference robot. Just a couple of examples of how Snowden is beginning to gain a place alongside James Bond as one of the most prolific and obvious cultural entities around the notion of surveillance. Why is, this, why is the world that Snowden has brought from conspiracy theories into mainstream culture is vast and pervasive? The nebulous pro problems he has exposed seem just too difficult to grasp. We don't even know how to begin to understand it, let alone engage with it in some meaningful way. John Lancaster put it rather well. There continues to be an extraordinary disconnect between the scale and seriousness of what Snowden has revealed and the scale and seriousness of the response. The recently passed Data Retention and Investigatory Powers Bill, the DRIP Bill, is a great example of that. But let's leave Snowden for a while and look around us to see how new forms of monitoring, big data, and algorithmic intelligence are penetrating more deeply in our lives. Today, I would like to explore, through some familiar examples, our complex relationships with various architectures of control, from the domestic comforts of our home to the promises of our political leaders and wars. A world where humans think bots, agents, actors, and puppets cohabit, where our perceptions are continually being designed in the valley of the meat puppets. A meat puppet is used to refer to a person who is invited to an internet discussion solely to influence it. A lot of what I'm going to talk about is how various tools of influence are being used to design and alter various realities and perception, so that word fits quite well. But I would also like to use this word 
to talk, to think about ways in which we are all being co-opted to becoming meat puppets in our everyday lives. As we farm data like livestock on Facebook or walk around wearing awkward gadgets. We sit alongside think bots, actors, agents, and advertising zombies, helping create and propagate reality, reinforcing the reality bubble. Ursula Le Guin used this term for the first time before the internet in the Diary of the Rose to refer to humans as unthinking bodies, which is a bit of a stretch, but I think it fits quite well. I'm here to explore this space today because I believe this would be useful in helping us think about how we as humans constantly negotiate our own agency whilst living with highly within highly mediated networks. Let's start with the most popular example, Facebook psychology experiment where the feeds of 700,000 people were manipulated. From Facebook's perspective, it was a research and legit. All they wanted to do was to find out if exposure to emotions led people to change their own posting behaviors. As the, as the psychologist said, it's not even that alarming or exciting. Hundreds of people did get upset, and Sheryl Sandberg apologized, we never meant to upset you. But then Christian Rudder, one of the co-founders of OkCupid said, well, yes, Facebook did it, but so do we. Everyone does it, because let's just be honest, most ideas are bad. Even good ideas could be better. Experiments are how you sort all this out. Here are some hastily added OkCupid profiles I found on Google image search. The guy on the top right corner used to be on it around 2008 with his stated desire to meet women from countries that have sustained political turmoil. Western women, he wrote, are valueless and innate, something he might now regret. Writer and scholar Mackenzie Walk has an interesting thing to say about this. People are really disturbed about the privacy side, but we realize slowly that what we really probably are disturbed about is just the opposite, the indifference. To them, the data of in, is of interest in aggregate, or the users are of interest in aggregate. Nobody really cares about your weird sex thing on the internet other than a way to sell you products related to your weird sex thing. It seems it is inherently challenging for people to be critical of the decisions that machines make. And that's just begun to get interesting as we begin to infiltrate our physical worlds with algorithms, making our material homes smart, intelligent. So this tiny gadget is called Piper. It's a home security system. You place it in your front room or your bedroom, and then you can watch your home while you're at work, whilst you're traveling, in the garden, or in the bathroom. You can even watch your children in their bedrooms. A tiny instantiation of crowdsourced surveillance. As a journalist in New York Times put it, instead of the entire space being private, there are going to be public areas in your own home. Piper is part of the growing generation of the Internet of Things products like the internet-connected fridge, which reminds you when you run out of milk. Earlier this year, a fridge apparently sent spam in bursts of 100,000, three times per day, targeting enterprises and individuals worldwide. David Knight of Proofpoint Security said, the botnets are already a major security concern, and the emergence of thing bots makes the situation much worse. But David Cameron still believes in them. 
Little does he or any one of us know the implications of our emerging technologies with such thingbots. As billions of sensors begin to find their way into everyday objects, what are the new civic codes that will need to be created? As we embed the world with sensors, we also find new ways of interacting with them. Sometimes we co-opt into exciting opportunities to become explorers or meat puppets, the wearers of Google Glass, always looking slightly above the horizon, holding a finger to a pair of glasses, saying okay way too often. <laughs> the awkward relationships with such devices are made easier as Google des designs the polite rules of engagement of what you should and shouldn't do with your glass. You can explore the world around you, and you should take advantage of the Google voice commands, but don't glass out or be a glass hole. So makers of technologies initially used to, earlier used to give us instruction manuals, but now they're beginning to define our behavioral engagements in the public domain, which I think is a subtle but profound shift. This code of conduct got attention because of this particular incident. I literally ended up saying, I can't believe this, over and over again the whole night. I just, it was the only thing that could come out of my mouth. It was the weirdest event. Sarah was out with her friends when they entered a bar in the Haight-Ashbury area in San Francisco. This is video she captured through her Google Glass. And we were there maybe about 15 minutes, and uh, two girls that were there, they started showing a lot of animosity towards me because I was wearing Google Glass. And at that point, I turned on the video on Glass, so I started recording them. I walked up to the bar, just saying like, oh, Google Glass, like, you know, just negative kind of comments. And they tried, they were trying to shield themselves as if I was recording them. And I wasn't even, you know, it wasn't on, I wasn't using it. You know, I mean, they, they clearly didn't understand it. They didn't know how it worked. This is fascinating and brings me to the famous Daniel Mendelssohn quote. I'm amused by the, by the fact our word idiot comes from the Greek word idiotes, which means a private person. It's from the word idios, which means private as opposed to public. So the Greeks thought that a person that brought his private life into public spaces who confused public and private was an idiote, was an idiot. Of course, now everybody does it. We are in a culture of idiots in the Greek sense. So far, so good. Toys, fridge, fridges, and gadgets. Well, it's all fun and games until your neighbor's car knocks on you. A Texas-based digital company, Digital Recognition Network, runs its own version of TaskRabbits. Basically, it sells cameras to repossession companies who pay money to private car, own, car owners to install this camera on their cars. The camera picks up up to 8,000 license plates daily, storing time and location of, of each car. Their, bo their bot then compares this to the list of cars that need to be repossessed and sends information to insurance companies, financial institutions, law enforcement agencies, and private investigators. Crowdsourcing, the very antithesis of control and surveillance, is now the tool being used by private companies for that very purpose. And of course, the CEO of DRN responds. It's taking a picture that has no expectation of privacy and is in public view. License plate reader technology stores these pictures just like people store pictures on Instagram, which are available for all to see. Whilst his words show a clear disconnect between raw technological ability and the intent behind that, in a way, it also shows the tension that exists here, 
our desire to share, but lack of understanding of where the data is going and what is being done with it. This sort of crowdsourced surveillance takes on an even more sinister tone when people in a protest are asked to abandon their cause and turn on their allies for a cash incentive. <laughs> Businesses or police can hire Tilter to send a message to all smartphones in a designated area, offering a reward to anyone who attempts to disperse the crowd from within. If the riot ends soon after, everyone who signed up on Tilter gets a share of the reward money. Whilst the founder has changed his language in the last few months, it's now called location-based group reward system. It recommends that Tilta should only be used for riots that arise from non-ideological reasons, such as sporting losses or during large concerts. If you doubt that tools like this will be used, look no further than the events in Ukraine, when thousands of Ukrainians protesters spontaneously received this text message on their cell phone you are registered as a participant in mass disturbance, as a new law prohibiting public demonstrations went into effect. Using a cell phone near a clash lands you on the regime's hit list, showing how technology is already being deployed to detect dissent. So this isn't a story about a government trying to stop a riot. Arguably, the government was responsible for per perpetuating the riots. These images are from my hometown in India, taken during the communal riots in 2002, which critics have likened to a genocide. India's National Human Rights Commission found evidence of well-organized persons armed with mobile phones, telephones, addresses, machetes, and swords, guns, uh, singling out certain homes and properties for death, destruction, and rape in certain districts, sometimes within views of police stations and personnel. What is interesting is that the man who was accused to take the lead role in it, Gujarat's Chief Minister Narendra Modi, and now India's Prime Minister, was given a clean chit and has a huge image makeover since then. To this person, the one who brings large-scale economic growth, and, uh, growth in the economy and infrastructure with projects like the Gift City or the Gujarat International Finance Tech City, the organization who's supposed to be responsible for Modi's image makeover is APCO, worldwide, the second largest lobbying firm in America. The firm specializes in helping corporations advance their goals by manipulating legislators and drafting and advancing model legislation and regulations. Key tools include the creation of business coalitions and fake corporate-funded grassroots groups tailored to specific issues, a practice known as astroturfing. They were primarily hired to create this showpiece titled Vibrant Gujarat, a crucial investment for Modi, with initial investment pro promises worth no more than about $14 billion. But post-APCO, the promises grew to $450 billion. Even if this were true, it's terrifying because Gujarat just doesn't have the infrastructural capacity to deal with such steep growth without causing irreversible damage to its urban and rural ecology. APCO's other international clients include the Sani Abacha uh, dictatorship in Nigeria and the corrupt Caspian regimes in Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan. APCO is not the only organization who can design influence at such a scale. The other key payers include donor-advised funds, such as the Donor Trust and the Donors Capital Fund, 
One of their secret funding route helped conservative billionaires channel nearly 77 million pounds to more than 100 groups, casting doubt about science behind climate change between 2002 and 2010. It helped build a vast network of think tanks and activist groups working to a single purpose, to redefine climate change from neutral scientific fact to a highly polarizing wedge issue for hardcore conservatives. This is a top secret memo from one such think tank, the Heartland Institute, who are developing the global warming curriculum for K-12 classrooms. They would like Dr. Wojcik, who works with the government, to show the teachers how the topic of climate change is controversial and uncertain, the two points that are effective at dissuading teachers from teaching climate science. This slide might appear to be right out of a typical corporate deck. But then as you progress, the nature of business at hand becomes even more sinister. Ten plus principles of influence, the deception principle, so on. These are slides from JTRIC, the Joint Threat Intel Research Intelligence Group, a unit of the GCHQ, who created this top secret document for the Five Eyes Intelligence Partnership that includes Britain, US, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand. Their ultimate aim is to control, infiltrate, manipulate, and warp online discussion using the four Ds, deny, disrupt, degrade, deceive. This is not something new. It has echoes of various operations in the past. For instance, the Operation Earnest Voice in 2011, where an online persona management system was used by the US Central Command. Basically, it could secretly manipulate social media sites by using fake online personas to influence internet con conversations and spread pro-American propaganda. The project was delivered by Netripit, an American software, hardware, and cybersecurity company. Psychologist Sarah King's US military work has references to this kind of approach as the information's operations thinking which is defined as attempts to influence, disrupt, corrupt, or assert adversarial human and automated decision-making. And today we can see how in subtle ways it is starting to stretch into our civilian world. Whilst we attribute many of our technological developments to the military, the line between corporate, political, and military tactics has never been more tortuous and intertwined in the pursuit for power and influence exemplified by the DARPA-funded big, big Dog Robots, acquired by Google. And now it's been renamed Cujo. Here is Cujo. It's supposed to be Dog from Hell. Um, he's just got, he, he, this is at a test patrol from the US Marines recently. It walked for miles across a difficult terrain, carrying over 400 pounds of their kit and weapons. So these stories embedded in our plastic toys, our smart homes, our devices, our cars, our personal relationships, our security, are in fact meticulous social fictions woven through the fabric of our everyday lives with stealth and precision. The connecting thread that runs through them is the scale and diversity in which we are actually experiencing an increasing ambiguity about where autonomy lies in our ever-growing intricate relationships between people, citizens, technologies, and architectures of control, which include state and non-state actors such as JTRIC, CERCO, 4GS, and many more. Together, these entities become the key constituents of the value of the meat puppets, 
a new ethereal habitat where people, agents, think bots, action heroes, dolls, big dogs, and many more cohabit. At this point, I'm reminded of Joseph Weizenbaum's famous quote. The only way you are going to get a world of thinking machines was not by making computers become like humans. Instead, you have to do the opposite. Somehow persuade humans to simplify themselves and become more like machines. And that's becoming possible as we realize that one dominant class is emerging. The class which owns and controls this mode of information, becoming the most powerful one, the vectoral class as named by McKinsey Work, because they control the vectors along which information is abstracted. Okay, so we can play with our data, but they control the metadata. And in the process, terraform our landscapes to create large faceless data centers. As we become more and more entangled in these messy relationships between human and non-human entities, it raises big questions about our sense of freedom and our capacity to act under constraints. With an increase in monitoring, surveillance, AI, and big data, this ambiguity, this sense of uncertainty and unconnectedness will become even more pronounced. Invisible wars over autonomy will become a recurring leitmotif of the 21st century. And if we are to understand and equip ourselves better to decipher and decode the intricate nature of these mediated social fictions, we will need to find new conceptual tools and vocabularies. The most important toolkit we, we need today is one that helps to create a visceral connection with the complexity and plurality of the worlds we live in, in order to create the momentum that is needed to reclaim our right to reimagine and reshape the worlds we live in. Tools that help us see beyond the singular linear past, present, future trajectory that is presented to us to a more multidimensional world of plurality of histories, presents, and futures, which help reveal the manufactured promises and give us the capacity to choose, navigate, and maneuver our journeys. In this lies the idea of taking the long view, looking at long stretches of the past to see how these new forms, to see evolving these new forms of being are from an imaginary vantage point in the future. Of course, the question is, why am I interested in, the, in this as a designer? A lot of design traditionally services, facilitates, and lives within these conditions and is very much entrenched within this world. It is either slick, seamlessly receding into the fabric of a singular vision or in the service of those companies that seek to define that vision. Whilst as a design studio we also practice in this world, we think it is important to continually question one's position. I'm reminded of a great quote by Lebius Wood and would like to paraphrase it for design. Design should be judged not only by the problems it solves, but by the problems it creates. So we are designers mostly. We work with lots of old and new technologies. Technologies are material. We are interested not just in how to make sense of these technologies and how they impact our lives today, but to translate this understanding into tangible and experiential visions visions that create visceral connections with how these technologies might touch our lives in the near future. In its manifestation, the granular materiality of the future, that's what we are most interested in. And I'd just like to share some examples of our ongoing experiments. So we did a wearable project. Everyone does wearable projects. This is called the Open Informant. 
So the, so the NSA, GCHQ, and many other security agencies secretly collect and scan our personal information and correspondence for trigger words, from the overtly malevolent anthrax, assassination, and bomb, to the seemingly benign pork, dock, and storm. Such techniques are often justified with an emotional narrative of safety. William Hague, in response to the Snowden revelation, said, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. Statements like this act to control the narrative around surveillance and close down public debate on the complexities of this issue. Our response, the Open Informant Badge, wants to con confront this normalizing narrative. It's, an e -E, it's, a, it's a phone app and an e-ink badge that searches your communication for these NSA trigger words and then sends text fragments containing these words to the badge for public display. By openly displaying what is currently taken by forceful stealth, we question the intrusive forms of surveillance. And in the process, it is our intention to shift the conversation around variables from being about you and your body as a machine to the culture of machine intelligence and algorithmic monitoring. All aspects of the badges design and construction are being made open for anyone to use and build upon. In another ongoing project called, the, uh, called IOTA, we are bringing smart cities to the people creating a grassroots-level platform that will encourage people to move beyond data spectatorship to engage in meaningful ways with the proliferation of sensor technology. The platform encourages people to gain empirical understanding about issues that matter most to them, from exposure to radiation or air pollution. It will not only show how data is made, how it is collected, how it can be read, where it lives, but most important, is it possible to do something with it collectively or how it could become an important tool for behavioral and legislative change. We are building demonstrators for this project, small little projects. The first one was, one, was around aircraft noise pollution to find out its direct impact on health. The second one is buggy air, where we are working with a group of 40 to 50 carers to understand the impact of ground-level air pollution, because ground-level air pollution uh, affects infants and toddlers the most, um, because they breathe lots of air in fast, uh, in much faster than adults. Our intention, basically, in this is that this data does not simply report the state of the world, but acts as political surrogates for a community advocating for its interests. And in an ongoing project, we are developing called the drone aviary. We are, under, we are interested in understanding the emergent cultural significance of the drone beyond a weapon or a fetish to explore its identity as an object of power. Because as, jo as Joanne McNeil said, it has the ability to move unimpeded through three-dimensional space, obtaining unique vantage points, collecting otherwise unobtainable data from those vantage points, and acting upon the power afforded by that data. The project uh, is investing through the lens of a spectacle how the presence of such machines in our cities will change our experience of the urban environment. We are in a build phase, but keep an eye out for announcements. Whilst these projects and many others like them work well for a certain audience, in their current incarnation, they may not have the power to influence mass culture in the way advertising, PR, and film industries do. But if we are to truly infiltrate a new way of thinking for today's mediated networked life, 
I wonder if we might be able to borrow some of the more powerful techniques that these industries use to meet the core philosophical objectives of our work. To help us progress beyond contracted, predefined archetypes of play and explore the ambiguous, nuanced multiplicity of our times, moving from a state of ideological consumption to autonomous world building, and break the manufactured state of compliance to encourage creative engagement in the way we interact with and respond to architectures of control. And finally, to puncture the seductive layers of deception spread by special media campaigns, politics, and PR campaigns strategies through direct and critical intervention. Thank you.